was just saying that this is a great book to read uh, of yours and that um, that if the history of classical liberalism is is now written, it would uh, feature prominently the two Johns, uh, Locke and, and Stuart Mill. And if the history of South African liberalism would be written, it would be the two Helens, Suzman and Zilla. Um, I, I first of all would like to thank you for uh, having us or, or for joining us and sharing your, uh, your uh, uh, reflections on your book. And I want to spring right into the first question I would like to pose to you. And, and that is, what do you understand by wokeness and what makes it unique in the South African context? In your book, you, you uh, state that the woke left is a bigger threat to our constitutional democracy than the populist right. Mazzella? Yes, indeed. And thank you very much, Professor Solomon, for having me. My, my uh, profound apologies for being slightly late. And I hope everybody will forgive me and I hope that you manage to fill the time. Thank you very much. Yes, it's important to understand wokeness. It's a very hip word that many people use because they feel that it gives them street cred in a modern environment, but very few people know what it means. If you look online at the Urban Dictionary or things like that, you'll find that it has a very positive meaning. It basically means in that context, a consciousness of injustice, specifically an awareness of racism in various contexts. And of course, that's a good thing. It's a positive thing to be conscious of injustice, to try and deal with injustice, to try and improve society. That is wonderful. But that is not what woke means. People who identify as woke and know what it means, know that it has its roots in critical race theory. And because I'm now speaking to a university audience, largely prof, I think I can go into some deep theory. And we must understand critical theory to understand what wokeness really means. Woke people who use the word in the proper sense tend to appropriate very positive and well-meaning and proper sounding slogans to hide something much more profound and much more dangerous. Let me use an example. Black lives matter. Of course, black lives matter. No one would argue against that. It is a statement of the patently obvious and everybody would like a world where everyone is respected and valued, whatever their race, color, or creed. That is what decent people do. So that's not the issue. The question to ask about Black Lives Matter is why they get so angry if you say all lives matter, and why they call someone who says all lives matter a racist. That's what you've got to understand to really understand what wokeness is about. You've got to understand the things they reject and get angry about. So they would fundamentally reject the statement that all lives matter, and they would fundamentally reject the idea of non-racialism, which I subscribe to, which they would argue is racist. 
Now I'll tell you why. If you go into the background of critical race theory on which wokeness is based, which goes back to the 1970s, where critical legal studies was developed and out of that critical race theory and all of the critical studies which have given rise to identity studies across the board, they go from the point of departure and the core ideological position that all whites are permanently and irrevocably racist. If they deny it, it is mere proof of their racism. And that the entire history of human development is merely a history of, or in the West, put it that way, the entire history of Western development is not a fulfillment of enlightenment values as liberals like to understand it, but it is more a history of the way white heterosexual males who are by definition racist have developed institutions and myths and societal processes and cultures to ensure that they remain at the peak of the human pyramid and they ensure that those institutions are sustained in order to keep themselves there. And so the underlying racism of whites and the patriarchal racism of white male heterosexuals underlies absolutely every institution, every process, the economy, and indeed every interaction between people, even if those people don't see it themselves. Which is why critical race theorists or the properly woke will argue that black people and white people can't be friends because they are in that way denying the inherent inequality and racism in that relationship. That is why wokeness argues for separate graduation ceremonies for black students, because that is a space that they can be comfortable and safe from the inherent white racism of inclusive ceremonies. And in terms of wokeness, they believe that society has a hierarchy which they're trying to overturn. At the top of the hierarchy are white heterosexual males who have developed and used all the institutions and processes of society to maintain the fundamental injustice. And then the hierarchy goes down and at the very bottom are black people, people with disabilities, um, gay people and a range of other so-called marginalized groups who've been marginalized by white heterosexual males. And the aim of critical theory is critical social justice, which means revolutionary change of all the institutions, including the basis of the market system. They are rapidly anti-capitalist because they say that system maintains the inherent injustice and racism of white heterosexual males. Now, the way wokeness manifests in the world is in the following way. It manifests mainly on social media, which is an ideal platform. And it is very, very performative. So many people who want to parade their woke credentials will do so on social media to polish their marble, to give themselves a medal and to say, look what an insightful 
caring, committed, politically correct person I am. It's often got absolutely nothing to do with a cause at issue. It's got everything to do with people wanting to belong to a kind of cult that is seen as progressive these days. But of course, in South Africa, we have seen very clearly where segregation leads to. We argued that separate can never be equal. And we wanted an inclusive society. We recognize in wokeness many of the ideas that were inherent to apartheid. And we have to reject the notion that people can be permanently and irrevocably identified on racial grounds. That takes us back to the Population Registration Act. That takes us back to trying to work out what people's race is by the color of their skin, the texture of their hair, all of those complete evils in a society that we want to be inclusive and find a way forward together, especially for the most marginalized. And that is liberal social justice. It is not critical social justice. Of course, we all believe in social justice, but we don't believe that you can achieve it by corralling people into clearly defined racial categories that other people seem to appropriate the right to impose on you. And it takes away the very foundation of what we understand by liberalism, which is the right of individual freedom. And in South Africa, you can see how dangerous it is. In America, you could at least make the argument that wokeness or critical theory is trying to advance the interests of the most, or of a minority, of the most marginalized majority, minority, sorry, of the most marginalized minority. But in South Africa, black people are a very substantial majority and they hold all the levers of power. So the point of departure that this entire society is based on white racism, marginalizing black people, cannot be sustained. And if you look at the writings of the key critical race theorists in the United States, the people who are the high priests of wokeness, like Ibrahim X. Kendi or Tanahisi Coates and others, they all tell you that if people have power and use it to oppress other people, then they are racists too. And their definition of racism would certainly apply to the corruption and um, very, very marginalizing performance of the South African government today. Now, simply for demographic reasons, the populist right is tiny. It can make a noise, but it has no access to, to real power and never will, either economically or politically. But the inculcation of the notion that the whole of society has to be overturned because everything has built on white racism, if that becomes a majority view in South Africa, then we will have to dismantle our constitution because our constitution is based on quite a different point of departure. It talks about non-racialism. It talks about individual liberties. It talks about a bill of rights. And if we are going to adopt critical race theory, 
the ultimate, the ultimate target is going to be all the institutions that protect individual rights and that protect people's rights in South Africa, because wokes have those institutions and the market economy in their sights, and South Africa will not survive it in our context. That is the argument of my book, and I use many examples to prove that. Uh, thank you, Mozilla. Uh, there are two questions the, uh, in the chat box. The one question or point is uh, raised uh, from Nelson Mandela University from, uh, from Mr. Giovanni, saying that Black Lives Matter does not support ethnic nationalism. And then uh, Dr. Glenn Siegel um, said that a quarter of a century after the end of apartheid, South Africa still, South Africans still carry racial designations and ask when this will change, when uh, people will vote uh, for economic change. Would you mind responding to those, please? Yes, sure, Prof, with pleasure. Um, yes, uh, well, you know, Black Lives Matter doesn't recognize ethnic designations. That's fine for Black Lives Matter. But what if somebody wants to identify themselves as a Zulu speaker or a Zulu culturally? Would critical race theory have a problem with that? Why take away somebody's right to do that? You see, you can't speak for all people. I mean, look at Rachel Dolezal. She is a classic case in point. We believe in individual freedom. Rachel Dolezal, to all intents and purposes, if you want to make a superficial judgment on somebody's looks, Rachel Dolezal would very easily pass for a black American. She is the partner of a black man. She's got two black children. She became the chair of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, as it's known in the United States. Then somebody outed her for not being a real black, but having been raised by white parents and that she was actually white, even though she looked quote unquote colored. And it became a scandal in the United States because she was trying for black when she wasn't really black. Now, what an outrage that scandal was to me. So what if Rachel Dolezal wants to identify personally as a black person? So what if she feels more comfortable in a black community or in her chosen community with a black husband and black children? Who gives a damn? Who gives anybody else the right to tell you that you may not identify for who you are? Yet on the other side, in this mad cult, they argue that Caitlyn Jenner, previously Bruce Jenner, was very, very brave to move from being a man to being a woman. So you're allowed to identify as a woman if you're a man in critical race theory, but you're not allowed to identify as black if someone has decreed, someone who doesn't know you, doesn't know your circumstances, someone has decreed that you're actually white. It's this kind of madness that we want to get away from in society. So what if Rachel Dolezal identifies as black? Who's got the right to tell her otherwise? That's Thank the you. First question. The second question is this. Of course, I would love to move away from designating people on the basis of race. And I often say, well, why are we mentioning that person's race? Oh, well, it's critical to the context and yada, yada, yada. When I was a journalist on the Daily Mail, 
we abolished all of those. We'd say a man, brackets age 56, was killed in an accident or whatever we would say. But we would take the color out of it. And this is the problem with critical race theory. It only sees things through color. Thank you very much. Um, on the issue of critical race theory, um, of course, you are extremely critical of what is being taught at universities and the humanities in particular. And you raise issues of uh, critical race theory and intersectionality and, and so forth. But what would you like a curriculum in the humanities to reflect? I would like a curriculum in the humanities to teach young people how to think, not to marinate them in a particular ideology for three years. I think when you emerge as a humanities student, you should specifically be able to understand most of the key paradigms through which the world is interpreted by different people and different movements. You would need to understand nationalism. You would need to understand Marxism. You would need to understand liberalism. You would need to understand critical theory. You would need to understand a range of paradigms through which to explain the world and processes and programs and history and the disasters of history and how to avoid that. Those are the thinking tools that you need as a functional member of society. But today I see in humanities curricula that young people are taught what to think and how to think it within a straitjacket of a particular paradigm that I personally believe will be a disaster for South Africa. And certainly at a place like UCT, it's starting to show and show very badly. For example, the vice chancellor has an annual lecture. Um, Mamageti Pakeng is the vice chancellor. She's obviously a black woman. And she invited a very prominent black woman author. And here I am mentioning their race. And I would, I, I actually hate to do that. In, invites a, a very prominent author to come and give a lecture. And the SRC are demanding that that invitation be withdrawn because this author is, by definition, a radical feminist or a strong feminist. I wouldn't know if she'd define herself as radical. And that's often interpreted as being transphobic, believing that natural born women who define their womanhood biologically in terms of their chromosome configuration are therefore by definition transphobic and do not welcome in women's spaces men who identify as women. Now, I don't know if this woman has ever given that impression, but even if she had, at what university do you stop someone speaking because you don't like their ideas? That is just madness. A university, by definition, is universal. It has to be a cauldron for many ideas, many debates, many perspectives. If people don't want to go and listen to her lecture, well, they don't have to. But to stop her speaking actually contradicts everything that a university should stand for. And exactly the same when Fleming Rose was disinvited from giving the academic freedom lecture. These moves totally contradict what a university is. And it all comes from teaching people one paradigm 
like an ideology, very dangerous in any plural society, and teaching people what to think instead of how to think. Thank you. Amazil, there is a question from Rani Makatso about the role of uh, young black conservatives. Okay. And there's a second question from Mujahid. If not grouping people on grounds of race, what other criteria will you, will, will you wish to use? Okay, I'm just writing things down here. If you see me look away, it's just because I'm, I try to find a notebook and pen, and so I have to remember the questions. Okay, what criteria you use is anything a person wants to choose to identify with. All vegetarians could start a vegetarian society, or gay people could organize for gay rights. All Zulu speakers could mobilize very hard for the recognition of their language and the standardization of their language, as deaf people have done for theirs. Neighborhood watchers can mobilize for community safety. Liberals can mobilize as liberals on a non-racial basis. Conservatives can do exactly the same. And if people want to identify as black, well, they can certainly do that. No one's got a problem with that, but they have to work within the Constitution. Now, it's very strange, the double standard. If we had to have a white author's society, it would quite, quite correctly be driven out of, of, of court because would people say, why, is, why? I mean, surely it's just an author's society. Why is it a white author's society? But here you have a black journalist, this and a and a black business that, and, you know, there's a kind of double standard in our society that when white people identify on the basis of race, there's an outcry. But when black people identify on the basis of race, it's progressive. In my view, that is double standards. Not that I am promoting people identifying on the basis of race. Quite the contrary. I would like people to identify on the basis of the issues that are important to them. And those issues can be totally non-racial. And that is the job of my political party, to say the values we stand for are not unique to any racial group. They are values that protect every individual in a free society, and therefore black people and colored people and white people and Indian people and gays and straights and Christians and Muslims and Jews and everybody can identify with a party that wants to protect everybody's rights and wants everybody to protect their rights. So you identify on the basis of principles and issues, like you might enjoy playing basketball, you might enjoy playing bridge. Doesn't matter if you're black and white and, and enjoy playing basketball, that's what draws you together. So that's what I mean about organizing society. In millions of groups, that get together around the issues that are important to them. And don't start defining how other people must be identified, but protect other people's freedoms to identify as they like, and leave you to identify in the way you like. So that's the first question. The second question is, the role of conservatives, black conservatives, is to find other conservatives and to mobilize around their ideas and values. And if you want to be conservative in the current day and age, in my day, it would have been radical, almost communist, as I was often called as a liberal, I was often called a communist back in the day, to say, we want 
to organize across color lines. We want an organization for all South Africans. We want the vote for all South Africans. Well, that was called completely, completely communist back in the day. But um, I would say a good thing for black conservatives to do is to mobilize with other conservatives and to build a strong conservative movement and promote your ideas. As I would say, communists should do or liberals should do because it's the ideas that bring you together, not your race. Okay, Mozilla, over the past few weeks, we have witnessed unprecedented levels of violence and looting. We also witnessed cabinet ministers contradicting each other and the president. In your view, is President Ramaphosa still in charge of the country and what is the future of the ANC? In your book, you speak of the disintegration of the ANC and it being beyond salvation. Do you still stand by that? Oh yes, and I've said that for many, many years. It's not only the ANC's corruption that has put it beyond salvation. Even if the corrupt or the most corrupt are driven out of that party now by Saul Ramaphosa, it's still captured by the, uh, the inept, if I can put it that way. The inept is probably the right word to use. The ANC is unraveling. Unfortunately, the unraveling of political parties does take a long time if it can't be reversed. And in the ANC's case, it can't be reversed. And I've been saying that for years and years. And the crisis we've seen in KwaZulu-Natal is exactly a symptom of that. It's an internal ANC battle that has spilt over into South Africa and has caused South Africa massive damage as usual, the ANC puts its own internal battles ahead of South Africa's interests. So what we saw here was an internal ANC battle spilling over into the country as a whole and costing us billions and billions of rands, but worse than that, costing us the capacity to try and build a common nation that functions within the rule of law and has done tremendous damage to our constitutional fabric. And that's all because the ANC is unraveling and it's going to continue doing that more and more into the future. Thank you. Um, in your book, you refer to the four C's. Uh, you refer to the centralization of power in the party. You refer to cronyism or cadre de deployment. You refer to corruption and the criminalization of the state. How do we move away from the state of, of, of affairs and what does the DA have to offer to South Africa in terms of concrete policy proposals? Well, the DA has a full suite of policy proposals and we have a policy unit headed by Gwen and Gwenya, who's a brilliant policy analyst. And we're about to have another policy conference in which we will table many more policies. So we continually updating our policies and looking at our policies. Now, the fundamental difference between the DA and the ANC as far as policy is concerned, is that the ANC has approached its policy process in the following way. They believe in terms of the national democratic revolution that the party should control the state and the state should control society. The fundamental difference between the ANC and the DA is how we understand the role of the state and the party. The ANC believes the party should control the state and the state should control society. And the DA believes in a state 
that performs the functions of the state, which are limited in nature and geared to protecting people's rights and freedoms and extending their opportunities to use their freedom to make the best possible use of their lives by their own initiative and hard work. And where there has been disadvantage, to make sure that through increasing opportunities, the backlog in opportunity disadvantage is wiped out. So we do believe in restitution and we do believe in fixing what was wrong in the past, not by manipulating outcomes, but by vastly improving opportunities. The ANC, on the other hand, believing that the party should control the state and the state should control society, grabbed control of the state and used that to centralize all power in the party and then deploy its cadres to positions all over the state, not on the basis of merit, but on the basis of political loyalty and political position, to turn the state into an arm of the party. Now, liberals believe that the state is there to protect people against the government, not become an extension of the ruling party to oppress the people. And under Jacob Zuma, Jacob Zuma captured for his wing of the ANC every single institution, the police, the revenue services, the National Prosecuting Authority. And we even now know that they had a slush fund through the state security agency to buy off judges to make rulings in favor of Jacob Zuma. Now that is the Jacob Zuma ANC's understanding of the state, that what has to happen is the part, you get control of the party, the party gets control of all of those state institutions that should be independent and that are here, Prof Solomon, to protect you and me and everybody on this webinar from abuse by a power abusing party in power, especially when that party has a built-in majority in the way the ANC has had for so long. And capturing those institutions and turning them into a wing of the party, not agencies to protect the people, has had a devastating effect on South Africa. That is what we call state capture. It's got nothing to do with the Guptas capturing the state. It's got everything to do with the ANC capturing the state. And once the ANC had captured all of those nominally independent institutions that then ceased to be independent, all the Guptas had to do was capture Jacob Zuma, and they captured the state in one big bite. So that is what we've been talking about in the DA since we were the DP. Since the 1990s, I've been talking about the Cs, centralization of power, cronyism and cater deployment, the inevitable corruption that follows because people know they are protected by the party, whatever they do, and then ultimately the captured criminal state. And Jacob Zuma took us to that end. And suddenly in 2015, journalists discovered the captured state and they thought, oh, this is a brand new insight. Well, not at all. If they would just listen, they would hear the DP saying these things for 20 years before it becomes common currency. Thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm turning back to the chat box and I see somebody has raised their hand. If they could type their question in the chat box, that would be great. Uh, 
Uh, Mr. Malema says he's a bit confused. On the one hand, you condemn people identifying on the basis of race. On the other, you claim people should identify as whatever they want, like Rachel Toleza. Is this not contradictory? And Dr. Glenn Siegel asks, so why do the majority in the country still vote for economic lies after a quarter of a century? Okay, Julius Malema's question. Welcome, Julius, and welcome everybody else. Look, our, our constitution is avowedly non-racial, and it speaks of specific forms of discrimination being allowed under very specific circumstances. But I believe that the spirit of our constitution is non-racial, and that I believe race is a social construct. I don't believe it's an inherent biological thing. I believe it's a social construct, and I believe it's progressive to believe it's a social construct. So I, ha I would have far more in common with the black people who are in the DA than I would with white people who are in other parties. Because we share a set of values and we share a set of ideas. Now, I'm not saying that people can't identify as black. But black is fundamentally a function of the amount of melanin in your skin, which is not a chromosome marker or anything like that. It's, it's, there's, there's no biological difference of any substance between race groups. But we give it a meaning because of cultural factors in our society. I don't mind if people want to identify themselves by their race. What I don't believe it should be incorporated in, and I believe it's unconstitutional for it to be incorporated in systems, processes, and structures that are established by an avowedly non-racial constitution. So that's my answer to Julius. My answer to Glenn Siegel is I don't know. You know, I mean, we do our best. We, we speak publicly all the time. We offer people an option. We have branches in every ward in the country. We're trying to get a branch in every ward in the country. We are working like anything to show the alternative. Where we are in government, things aren't perfect. I would never claim that things aren't perfect, but they're certainly getting better for everybody. And the unemployment rate is substantially lower than it is in other parts of the country. So, you know, we're doing our best to make a country work for everybody with great passion and great commitment. That is what we are doing. But if people are trapped in other paradigms, we keep on pushing. I mean, you know, these things don't happen overnight. They take a very long time, especially in societies which have been defined by race for so long. Uh, Mozilla, in relation to Dr. Siegel's uh, a question, um, I would like to raise a point that you also bring forth in your book you know, you mentioned the perception that the DA uh, uh, is, is still perceived in some quarters as a white party, despite the fact that by 2016, you had a black leader and eight out of nine black provincial leaders were black, uh, you uh, stated. So how does the DA escape this, uh, this uh, perception? You know, the biggest mistake I made as leader of the party was to try to escape that perception because I realized that we never ever will. And the reason that we never will is 
because the ANC can't let us. The ANC cannot campaign on a single other issue except race. It cannot point to a single place that they have governed properly. It cannot point to a single policy that has worked. They cannot point to a track record of delivery. They can point to absolutely nothing. So the only thing they've got is race mobilization. That's the only tool they've got in their toolkit. So they have to divide South Africans by race because that's the only thing they've got. And they have to accuse the DA of racism. I thought we could overcome that by logic. I thought we could get to the point where we had a black leader, eight out of nine black provincial leaders, where we had more black voters than white voters and more black members than white members. And then obviously logical people would say, this is not a white party. But the point is the majority of whites do support the DA because they buy into our paradigm. Good for them. I believe it is the only thing that can save South Africa in the long term. And I'm not embarrassed by a single one of the white people who support us. Neither am I embarrassed by any other person who supports us because I believe that they have a clear vision for the future way in which this country can succeed. However, I realized that for as long as one white person still supports the DA, they will call us a white party and we will never ever get rid of it. When I stepped back for a black leader in the DA, what did they do? They didn't say, well, finally, the DA's got a black leader. It's no longer a white party. They said, oh, no, the black leader is only a puppet. And Zilla is still running the show. Even though I wasn't on the federal executive, the federal council, I didn't have any leadership position in the party. I just was the premier of a province getting on with my own life and a member of a branch. They said, oh, no, no, this is a puppet. You see, they cannot let race go. They just cannot because the ANC will die without race. The DA will flourish if we actually look at people for their values and attributes and qualities and move out of the apartheid paradigm of race. Thank you. Um, there was a, a question and a comment, I believe. Um, Mr. Modesanya asked, what is the real issue of identifying with a certain group in South Africa? Is it exclusions associated with such groups? And Professor De Yacher at Stellenbosch University speaks of the importance of pluralism in a democracy. All right. Um, what is the point of identifying with a group? Well, to advance a specific interest. And, um, you know, if, if, if you believe that all restaurants should offer a vegetarian option, then you will mobilize with other vegetarians to make sure that happens. So you're pursuing a specific and valid interest in society and you mobilize for that. Mothers are against drunk drivers. Mothers who are worried about their children being on the roads at night, their teenage children who've got driving licenses and other things, they mobilize around that. The point of mobilizing in society is to advance a specific interest. Now, you know, it's very hard to say that there's a black interest in society. I mean, BBBEE, as I show convincingly in my book, has not benefited the marginalized and the excluded black people. It's over and over and over again 
enriched a small political elite that is hiding behind the fig leaf of race to become obscenely wealthy and corrupt. It's got nothing to do with empowering black people, even though it uses the word BBBEE. It's a complete farce, actually. If you wanted to empower black people, which the DA wants to do, you just have to look at our economic justice policy to see how we can get economic justice in South Africa. That is a policy that seeks to uplift the downtrodden and the marginalized with real opportunity and real muscle. BBBEE does the exact opposite. So the bottom line is this, people mobilize around their interests and people who try to mobilize around race are never mobilizing around the marginalized and downtrodden. They're always using the marginalized and downtrodden to advance their personal interests. Um, there's pluralism, a... pluralism in, the, in a democracy. Yes, of course I believe in pluralism. I believe in freedom and people must be free to organize and make their choices. Absolutely. Um, there's a question from Dr. Eben Kutsir. How do we stop talking past each other? Uh, one of the old realists of international politics, Reinhold Niebuhr, made an excellent point. We will only go forward if you can see the situation of others as vividly as our own. How do we stop viewing each other in these terms? Well, that's why we so value freedom of speech and freedom of expression and freedom of the media and these kinds of debates. Because we listen to each other, we talk to each other, we understand each other from each other's perspective, and people raise arguments and issues. Absolutely, we believe in that. Um, Alan Payton had a wonderful definition of liberalism when he also spoke about the capacity to comprehend otherness, which is the way other people perceive and view the world. And you can only do that really, frankly, in a liberal paradigm because that guarantees the freedom of every perspective to express their views and to ensure that other people can hear their views. So that's a fundamentally liberal idea that you listen to other people and that you express your own opinions. That's why I say that liberalism is not an ideology. An ideology believes it has the paradigm that it'll explain all the world's problems and provide the solution. That only ever leads to disaster. But liberalism is a political philosophy that assumes that no human being can find the truth or the perfect answer, although we can move closer to it by listening to each other and debating with each other. So I completely agree with that. And that happens in an open society. That's why we support the notion of an open society so much. And that is why we support the notion of people talking to each other openly in such a society. Thank you, Mozilla. On page 30 of your book, you, you write that the primary role of the state is to create conditions in which all people have opportunities to use their rights and freedoms to live their lives uh, they value. Now, given the enormity of the socioeconomic challenges in South Africa, uh, would this not be an extensive state apparatus which fundamentally undermines the classic liberal notion of a limited state? No, we do actually believe that there's a fundamental role for the state. Now, if you look at Japan, you will see the classic developmental state. I refer to Japan in my, in my book. But the developmental state in Japan and I've read a really excellent book by uh, Chalmers Johnson on this issue. 
After the war, when Japan was totally flattened in the Second World War, they said, we have to lift ourselves up again. How are we going to do it? And they decided on the model of a developmental state, which had the following thesis, that you have to bring the very brightest and the very best people into the state to ensure that every single policy is aligned and implemented to driving economic growth. That doesn't mean to say that the state creates jobs, not at all, but the state does everything necessary to create conditions for private sector investment and for private sector growth and gets every obstacle to investment and growth out of the way. That is how they understood the developmental state. And that is how I understand the developmental state. In South Africa, that concept has been completely perverted to the notion that the state must control everything and decide who gets what jobs, which jobs are created where, creating massive bottlenecks. Our ports aren't working. None of our state-owned enterprises are working. We can't even get electricity. In a developmental state, a proper developmental state would say, how in the current environment can we make electricity as widely accessible and as cheap as possible? How can we maximize competition in the energy generation space to achieve that? How can we bring the private sector into that space to create jobs and to drive cheap energy that can be reticulated everywhere? That's a developmental state. In our state, it says, how can we protect ESCOM's monopoly? We have invested so much through ESCOM that we have to continue selling electricity only through ESCOM and through massive price hikes so that we can pay back the loans we've taken for the monopoly to start Kusile and Madupi instead of diversifying and ensuring plentiful energy at lower prices. That is the critical difference. So while you haven't got reliable energy, you're not going to get investment. There's this major survey and you're not going to get jobs. The first thing that will kill jobs is unreliable energy. And the first thing that has killed unreliable energy is the ANC state. The ANC state controlled by the party. Instead of understanding that their job is to make sure that they get all obstacles out of the way for plentiful cheap electricity, they've made their job holding on to a monopoly that they should not have which in fact drives away investment. And there's been a recent major survey of all international companies in South Africa on what are the biggest barriers to investment in South Africa. Number one is unreliable energy, which is the creation of the incapable state. And number two is BBBEE. So those things are killing jobs in South Africa. If you want to deal with the legacy of the past, you start with a problem of 42% unemployment. And you start with a question of what are the biggest barriers to employment in South Africa? And they've all been enumerated and they're all there for everybody to see. Number one, electricity. Number two, BBBEE. And then you say, how can we get rid of those barriers so that just like Singapore, just like Japan, just like many of countries that have come from very, very poor circumstances 
and eradicated poverty? How can we make ourselves an international investment hub for growth and jobs? Currently, because of the problems in the ANC and the way that the captured state reflects the fights in the ANC, which is what the fights between Becky Trele and Ayanda Glodlo that you referred to earlier are all about, they are making South Africa uninvestable. Uninvestable. And while South Africa is uninvestable, you can have anything you like. You are not going to deal with our number one problem, which is a legacy of the past, and that is unemployment. Mozilla, we, we only have a few minutes left, so I'm going to put three questions to you. The first two seems to be related. The one is from Antando Sindania. Uh, saying that critical race theorists in South Africa do offer a precise, uh, a decisive critique of the constitution of the republic, specifically in that it fails to account for the horrors of racism, dispossession, and landlessness. The second issue, I, I guess, is related to that, comes from Mr. Giovanni Poggi, who talks about structural racism, that our society is not open. And then the final question relates uh, from uh, Sunet Madansela um, about wokeness and it seeking to decolonize knowledge. If you could answer those questions in five minutes, I would really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I've got a chapter in my book on decolonizing knowledge, which is, um, you know, you remember that science must fall video from UCT. Well, I analyze the science must fall video and say why that is a direct product of critical race theory. Basically, what it what critical race theory argues is that superstition is as valid a form of knowledge as Newtonian physics. Now, I'm sorry, I don't buy that. Um, you know, a scientific theory is postulated as a theory. It is tested again and again and again and again until it is turned into a scientific law. And um, these hypotheses have to be tested, and I believe in the scientific method, which is a product of the Enlightenment. And I don't believe it's racist. I believe it has led to incredible progress for people all over the world. And so I don't believe that these Enlightenment values are, are, are a problem. Um, in terms of um, structural racism, I mean, this is, this is straight out of the critical race theory playbook. It believes that every single structure and every single process is racist. Now, I believe that you can make st uh, structures and systems inclusive, as we certainly have done within my party and within our governments. I certainly think that you can do that, make things inclusive. And one has to work at it and one has to deal with it. But um, this notion of structural racism that you have to dismantle every structure and institution in society and start again will lead to more problems than it solves. Believe me, I believe in making institutions functional and inclusive instead of dismantling institutions. And then, yes, the critique of our constitution. Well, if we haven't got our constitution, we've got nothing to protect us from total power abuse. And that's what has happened. Now, I think the people who are looking at landlessness must look at the total incompetence of the land reform program and then critically look at the vast amount of land in South Africa, some of the most fertile land in South Africa from the Ingonyama Trust to land right up the east coast of South Africa that is in black hands, and why is it is not producing food or jobs. That must be central to this notion of land reform and getting land into the hands of the people who work it, surely. 
there's vast amount of land that has been completely neglected and many of the land reform projects have resulted in total failure. What, you know, land is not wealth. Land is only worth anything if it's productive and produces food and jobs. Otherwise, it's expensive dirt. And what we need is land producing food and jobs for all people in South Africa. That's what we need to do with our land. The Constitution doesn't stand in the way of that, not at all. Thank you, Mozilla. One final question. Um, in, in the final sentence of your book, you uh, strike a hopeful optimistic tone. You write, as always, I believe that in South Africa, the worst will not happen because enough of us continue to work for the best. Despite the recent developments this past week, are you still hopeful for South Africa's future? Yes, I am. Um, I think there's a very powerful civil society. I think the DA is making more and more contact with the civil society. I believe that South Africans deep down are rational. We know that we need each other. We know that we cannot break off into tiny little enclaves and start um, fighting each other. Look, it's a, it's a huge step we're taking, especially against the major zeitgeist in the world. Culture wars in America, Brexit, the anti-multiculturalism in the United States. But we are in one country for historical reasons that we can't change. And we either sink together or we swim together. And I believe South Africans are intelligent enough, sensible enough, ethical enough, and rational enough to make that choice. Thank you very much, Mozilla. Colleagues, friends, thank you so much for uh, being here and to listening to Mozilla's uh, important book. If you, if you haven't read it, I would definitely suggest that you read it. Very, very interesting perspectives. Thank you, Mozilla. It's a great thank pleasure. You all. Professor Solomon, I really appreciate your, the time and the effort that you've given me. Thanks so much. Bye. Pleasure, man. Bye, Bye, everyone. Thank you.